The Old Testament lesson <clears throat> comes from Isaiah 59, 14 to 21. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and righteousness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. The psalm for today is 22, verses 22 through 31. I'm just kidding, it's Psalm 91. Oh, it's just printed as 22, but it's actually 91. Okay. <laughs> Whoever dwells under the defense of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. For he shall deliver you from the snare of the hunter and from the deadly pestilence. He shall you under his wings, and you shall not be afraid of any terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. A thousand shall fall beside you and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Because you have said the Lord is my refuge and have made the Most High your stronghold, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. You shall tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample under your feet. He shall call upon me, and I will hear him. Indeed, I am with him in trouble. I will deliver him and bring him honor. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, 
New Testament reading is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. This is Paul, the preacher, saying, let me close with this. Nope. This is your sermon. It was awesome. You read it. I'll sit here. All right. <laughs> Ephesians. There we go. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. Okay. 
put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. So we are coming to the last week in our study of the book of Ephesians. We've been doing this for the last couple of months. And this is, it starts out with Paul saying, let me wrap up with this. He starts out by saying, finally. You know, a lot of sentences throughout Ephesians had been going, therefore, do this, or therefore, because of what I said. It's kind of everything is building on the previous thing. But here, he's saying, I'm going to wrap up with this. Let me give you something to take home. In the previous couple of verses, he, he made application from the, the gospel that he had preached. He made application to specific categories of people within the church. But here, he makes application to every believer. So we get a passage that, if you grew up in church, you, you've probably heard it a few times. I know that I did in Sunday school growing up. It's the passage talking about putting on the full armor of God. If you have a Bible with you today, open it to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be verses 10 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are extra of these blue Bibles on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those is, is yours to keep as our gift to you. Let me pray for us as we open God's Word together. God, we would ask to see Jesus today in your word. We would ask to hear him in our prayers and in our songs. We would ask to feast with him at your table. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. As with everything else in the book of Ephesians so far, just in case you didn't think I could sneak this in one more week to hammer these two words, everything in the book of Ephesians so far, and this includes going back to the images of unity and holiness. Paul's call to the church to pursue unity and holiness. And here, he's giving an image of unity that's found in putting on this armor of holiness. It's what the church is supposed to be about. We are called to pursue true unity, bound together to one another in the love of Christ. And we're called to pursue true holiness, which basically just means following in Jesus' footsteps. And with everything else in this book, this is not, he's not saying, you, singular, you, Bob, Sally, Jim, you put on the armor of God. This is, this is y'all language. This is what you are supposed to do. This is what we are supposed to do together. Because the images that he's using here, this is not like commando stuff. This is not Jason Bourne stuff. This is literally the Roman legion. Paul is using a metaphor of each individual component of armor that the Roman legion used in their standard getup. And the Roman legion achieved victory because of their utter unity. They worked together. They trained together. They operated in complete harmony. And when they fought, they fought with, with a cohesive unity. Their strength came from unity. This is about all of us, each one of us individually, and all of us together as a church, putting on the armor of holiness. 
This is armor that we are given to put on as part of our identity. This is part of our vocation as kingdom citizens and part of a resurrection family. Because here's the thing to remember. God has richly gifted us. And he's gifted us with this, with this protection. And we are armed and protected with one word and one spirit and one another. We'll take some time and think about each one of these items individually, but I want to look at some bigger picture stuff as well in this passage. So here's some things to realize as, as, as Paul wraps up this letter to the Ephesians using this metaphor of Roman, arm and le- Roman armor legion, Roman legion armor. Well, first of all, the armor of God exists. Like Paul isn't saying, hey, go out and craft yourself some armor. I mean, it's kind of basic when you look at a statement like this, but, but it's good to think about the underlying presuppositions. He's saying, put on the whole armor of God, not go make it for yourself. Like, he doesn't say, here's a blacksmith forge and a big hammer and now get to work. No, this exists. God equips his people. You don't have to make it for yourself. It might seem like a small detail, but if you think about it, how exhausting would it be to believe in a God where you had to do everything yourself to Make sure you're good enough. Make sure you're doing the right things in the right order. Make sure that that God will like you enough that he will bless you. But fortunately, the God of the universe, the biblical God, is not like that. All we are called to do is to believe, to put our trust and our faith in him, that he is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he would do. That is all that we're required to do. And even that faith itself, as Paul told us in this same book, In Ephesians 2, even that belief in him is itself a gift from God so that no one has anything to boast about over anyone else. So this armor of God, as with everything else from God, is all gift. It is all gift of God. It's from him to us for a world that has more snares and pitfalls and evil stuff in it than any of us imagines. God really does protect his people. And he really does it in order to equip us for the work that he has given us to do. And it's interesting, this armor of God is specific. Paul labels each one of these things. It's not the breastplate of self-reliance or the shield of read a lot of books or the sword of liberty and freedom. Each one of these things highlights a specific attribute of God's character and how he calls us to be. So each of them are from God and each of them are about God. And finally, on on a big picture level, this armor exists for a purpose. In this in-between time that we live in, between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the time that he will come back to make all things new, his church, his body, has a mission. It's why we plant churches. It's why you all decided to be a part of this little church plant as opposed to going to a, a bigger and more established church because we're called to continue the work of the church to tell the story of Jesus and to push light into the dark corners of the world. So the armor of God has a purpose. I want to look at each one of these things individually for a few minutes. The first one is the belt of truth. It's the very first thing Paul tells people to put on, which means it's primary and it's fundamental. Don't do anything else until you are armed with truth, right? And the belt would keep your tunic from flopping all over the place, and it would actually kind of hold all the rest of the armor in place. It was sort of the foundational garment of the Roman legion. It's fundamental. If you're not wearing a belt and you go into battle, you can have the biggest shield or the sharpest sword and it won't really matter because everything's going to kind of go everywhere and you're going to trip and fall. 
So the foundational item in this armor of God is the belt of truth. So what is true? God is true. His love is true. His justice is true. His mercy is true. And his word is true. Our faith is not based on feelings or based on some subjective notion of what works for me. Foundationally, Christianity is primarily, although not exclusively, but primarily not based on our personal experience with God. And certainly, personal life transformation is one of the fruits of what God is doing in us. It's evidence of those truths, but it's not truth itself. I mean, if we're going to be honest, people can clean up their lives under a lot of different belief systems. But the Christian life is based on historical events. God really did create the world. Human beings really did fall into sin and are in need of redemption. And Jesus really is a God and a man at the same time. He was born in a specific place, and he died in a specific place. And then three days later, he wasn't dead anymore. And everything that we do is based off of those truths. And so with that truth, when we are armed with that truth as a foundational garment, then we start to be equipped for battle. The next one Paul talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. And, and basically, he was just quoting from the Isaiah 59 passage that Rob just read out. In Isaiah 59, God looks around Israel at his chosen people, and he sees that there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one deals justly with another. No one is honest with another. Isaiah says in a couple of verses before what we read, in identifying the condition of, of human beings that are far from God, he says that we stumble around at noon as though it were twilight. We are like the dead among those who are healthy. And so in our passage of Isaiah 59, God promises to bring justice and redemption himself because there's no one else that's going to do it. Isaiah points the picture of who this Redeemer will be gearing up for battle. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. So in the Isaiah passage, it's God himself, it's the Redeemer, who's going to put on this armor. But in our Ephesians passage, Paul is telling us to put on the same armor. So isn't that, like, isn't that kind of the work of Jesus? Shouldn't we leave that to him? Well, we do it because as followers of Christ, it means that we, are, that we listen to what he tells us to do. And one of the things he tells us to do is to spread his message to every corner of the earth. Now, Paul is using a, a, a military metaphor here. But I want you to remember, when we go through all these pieces of armor, that if you back up a couple of verses, Paul insists, and he reminds us, that we are fighting a spiritual battle. The conflicts that we have with one another the conflicts that we have in a world hostile to the gospel, those are not what's in view here because they are nothing compared to the real but invisible conflict that's going on all around us all the time. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Our struggle is not against other human beings, but against the spiritual powers of darkness who for a while have been given authority to rule in our world. Let me be perfectly clear. Paul is talking about Satan and his demons. And I say this as a pastor who is not overly drawn to talking about spiritual warfare. I'd much rather talk about the, the severity of sin and the depth of our brokenness and the incalculable weight of grace that God has shown us undeserving sinners. But 
We can't read the Bible truthfully and not realize that that cosmic battle, although invisible to us, is very, very real. So, the Redeemer in Isaiah 59 puts on this breastplate of righteousness and begins to bring justice. Jesus wore it, and he gives it to us. Paul tells us to put the same thing on. So Jesus had it, but he gave it to us. If that rings a bell at all, because that's basically just a military metaphor of 2 Corinthians 5.21, what the theologians call the great exchange. For our sake, Jesus, I'm sorry, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of what God did in the work of redemption, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus took all of our sin upon him, but didn't leave us as blank slates. He actually gave us his righteousness. He imputed it to us is the, the theological term. The breastplate that Paul calls us to put on, that belongs to Jesus. He gives it to us and we are clothed with it because Christ himself is sufficient to stand up to any evil. Now one thing that's interesting to note here, what isn't carried over from the Isaiah 59 passage In Isaiah 59, we're told that the Redeemer put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And we don't get those things, apparently. Vengeance and zeal, which, which could also be translated as fervor or almost like jealousy. It's a very inflamed word, vengeance and zeal. These things belong to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. And so we get, we get this armor transferred to us, but not all of it. Because we are called to be witnesses, we are called to stand firm, and we are called to be messengers. But we ourselves are not called to have the vengeance and zeal of the Lord. What we are given is the next thing. The shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, which is a, it's a big mouthful. So as basically as, as, as sandals or as boots, as bindings for your feet, you have the preparation of the gospel of peace. Remember how I said that Paul borrowed this metaphor of the breastplate of righteousness from Isaiah 59? Well, this one that he's taking is from Isaiah 52, where it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. How beautiful are the, are the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good news of happiness, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's what Paul is talking about here. Shoes are used for walking or for running. And the people that needed really, really good shoes were the messengers, the heralds, like the, the, the guy who ran from Marathon to Athens, 26.2 miles, to proclaim the good news that the battle was won and the king is victorious. The shoes that Paul tells us to put on, this next way that God richly equips us and protects us, the shoes that Paul tells us to put on are the readiness or the willingness or the, the preparation to proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. It sounds odd that, that our willingness to follow the Great Commission and to tell others about Jesus is itself a defense against the dark spiritual forces of the world. In this case, the best defense is a good offense. Bringing light into dark places actually helps drive the darkness back. Even when, in some cases, even when people who proclaim the gospel are persecuted for it, 
And remember, Paul was in prison as he wrote this. He was being persecuted for the gospel. So even in some cases, when, when people who pr proclaim the gospel are persecuted for it, they are still protected, God tells us, because our battle is not against other human beings. Our war is against the spiritual forces of this world. So the person who doesn't know Jesus, even the person who is hostile to Jesus and to his church, that person is not the enemy. The spiritual forces of darkness, they are the real enemy. And when we go out and boldly proclaim the good news, the good news of King Jesus, we are protected against those forces, even though we can't see them. The next one is the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, which is a great image. You kind of just picture someone holding up a shield and these flaming arrows all, all sticking into it. So, if the devil is a liar and the father of lies, then what do we use to, to extinguish his flaming arrows? We use faith. We use a trust in God and his promises. The evil one will always come at us with lies. You aren't good enough. You aren't strong enough. Sin isn't a big deal. You're unlovable. Everyone's doing it. The Bible isn't real. Jesus never existed. Anything and everything that he can do to try to shake our faith. But they are all lies that all lead back to the original lie in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent said, did God really say to not eat the fruit from that tree? So when the flaming arrows of lies come at us, they're all just the same lie over and over. Don't trust what God said. But with faith, with the shield of faith, we can extinguish those arrows. Belief in God and trusting in his promises is what we can use to extinguish the lies of the devil. One more thing as you're visualizing this, this, this shield of faith that God has gifted us to protect ourselves with. This is not some little round Captain America shield. These were full body shields that were used by a Roman phalanx. The, the name for the shield, which was uh, thureos, it comes from thuro, which is door, because that's about how big it was. The shield was the size of a door. And so if you put that shield in front of you, when your faith is out in front of you, you are covered and protected, your whole body. And that reminds me of another image of the Roman legion. The Roman legion would march in these phalanx rows where when they would come under attack, the front row of guys would all put up their shields in front of them, these door-sized shields. And the guys in the rows behind them would put their shields above them, like a roof, and the guys on the outside of each row would put their shields on the side. And so basically, you're building this house of protection around you because they worked as a group, because they worked as a whole. Every person's faith strengthens the church body as a whole. This battle is not something that we are ever meant to fight alone because we are armed and protected with one word and one spirit and one another. And then the helmet of salvation, again from Isaiah 59. There's an interesting quote by a guy named Gaius, Gaius Marius Victonius, who was from about 375 AD. He said that it's actually Christ who's the helmet. He said, Christ is the author of salvation. He is our head in the church. He descended to us and redeemed us by his own mystery. It is he indeed who guards the head of the faithful. Therefore, he is the helmet 
of salvation. He is the word by which the adverse powers are overcome and taken captive. Christ, the word of God, sent to overcome all corruption and wickedness and even death itself. And if we think of this armor of God as a gift from God to his people, the, the greatest gift of all was the gift of Jesus, the Redeemer, the one who brings us salvation. And so he is the one giving us the most protection in our most vulnerable and important area. And that brings me to the last one. Four out of the five things that Paul talks about are defensive, right? This is armor. This is stuff that you are supposed to to put on to protect you from an onslaught. Only one is offensive, designed for us to go on the attack. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How are we supposed to battle a demon? How are we supposed to actually combat the forces of darkness? Well, maybe I should think about doing what we see Jesus himself doing. When Jesus was confronted by Satan, he didn't use miracles, and he didn't use strength, and he didn't call on the heavenly army of angels, and he didn't run away. He used God's word to defeat Satan at his own game. Satan tempted Jesus three times in the desert, and three times Jesus quoted God's word back to him, used God's word as a sword to pierce Satan's arguments. We know that God's word is a comfort in time of need, and we know that it is a light unto our path, and it really is both of those things. But God's word is also the only weapon that we need to fight against spiritual foes. In, in Isaiah 11, and then a couple times throughout the, the book of Revelation, we are giving, given this absolutely bananas crazy image of the Messiah, the conquering king in full power and glory, and he has a double-edged sword coming straight out of his mouth. It is, it is a jarring image. But it all ties together. Paul tells us to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is himself the Word of God. God's Word is the sword coming out of his mouth, fueled by the breath, which is the Holy Spirit. The word for spirit and the word for breath in both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek are the same thing. God's Word is the product of the Spirit of God, this, this breath of God. And Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so while it's all we have for offense, it is all we need for offense. That's what the armor of God looks like. I want to offer one final thought as we we close our time in, in God's armory. Because if we believe this stuff, and if we are fully like kitted out with all the stuff that Paul is talking about, What does that look like? With this God-given armor designed to protect us from very powerful forces that we cannot see, how do we look? So I want to bring up the Old Testament story that that probably most of you know, David and Goliath. David, this, this hulking champion, a mountain of a man, the champion of the Philistines, is calling out to the Israelites saying, you are too cowardly to come fight me. And David, little teenage David, the youngest of all of his brothers, says, oh, I'll fight him. And people thought he was crazy. He said, you, King Saul said, you can't fight him. He said, you're a kid. He's been a soldier since before you were born. David says, I'm going to go get him. So Saul says, okay. Saul puts him in the king's armor. This is, this is regal armor and it was made of bronze, which meant that to anybody looking at it, it would have looked really good. And so Saul puts David in, in this incredibly nice armor. 
But David's a little kid. And Saul was a head taller than every other Israelite. So David couldn't move in it. He couldn't do battle with it. He couldn't pursue his mission in it. And he took it off. He took it off because he said that he was clothed in the power of the Lord. And everyone thought he was nuts, especially Goliath. But David said to Goliath, you come at me, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. From a cosmic view, from God's view, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the shoes of the gospel, these are the only things that can, that can protect us. But from the world's point of view, much like we can't see the evil forces going on around us, from the world's point of view, you can't see a belt of truth or a shield of faith. From everyone else's point of view, David looked weak and foolish. From the world's point of view, Jesus looked weak and foolish. Just some itinerant rabbi who got on the wrong side of the religious powers of the day, got caught up in some weird regional political religious power struggle, and got killed for it. To the world, Jesus looked weak and foolish. But there's comfort in that, because for the Christian, for the every, everyday average Christian, which all of us are, we don't have to look strong and powerful. Because for the Christian, our strength is in weakness. The power of God will always look like foolishness to the world. And so to the world, we might look foolish. We might even look unarmored and naked. But from a cosmic sense, we are well protected. And we are protected as a church. We are protected when, when we all of us put on this armor. And this is the place where it actually happens. This is our armory. We are, we are protected by His Holy Spirit. We are, we are protected by His Word. And we are protected by one another. Paul tells us to take up the whole armor of God that you may withstand the, in the evil day and having done all, <clears throat> to stand firm. All of you, y'all together, stand firm. Stand firm in what? Stand firm in the gospel truths that he has spent the first five chapters of this book going on and on about. To stand firm together to resist the spiritual forces that are always at play in the world even if we can't see them. The church is called to stand firm in the, in the, in the biblical faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the church is called to be messengers of the victory of King Jesus over the power of sin and death and the devil. And those evil forces might have a little bit of criticism. They might have a little bit of negative feedback about this mission that we've been given. But fortunately, we have been equipped by God for all that we are required to do. And so I want you, if you think about this passage this week, about putting on the full armor of God, think of it this way. These are our work clothes. This is our uniform. We are defended by all these various aspects and attributes of who God is. And we are armed with his word. So, as Paul says to the church at Ephesus, put it on. These gifts of God are for you. Use them. Take them. We already have the truth. Use it as your belt, your, your foundational readiness. You already have the righteousness of Christ in this great exchange that happened in the cross and the resurrection. 
God takes his guilt and shame. God, God takes our guilt and shame. Really important to get that one, right? God takes our guilt and shame on himself and he gives us back his righteousness. Use that as your breastplate to cover your heart. We already have the gospel. We have the good news of the victory of King Jesus. Use that as shoes to propel yourself out into the world and tell other people the good news. We have the faith that God is who he says he is and that he has done what he said he would do. Use that as a shield against the lies of the devil. And we have Christ. We have Christ himself as the head of our church, our helmet of salvation. And finally, we have the Bible, God's authoritative and preserved word. Use that as the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth. Sharpen that and hone that. Get to know it better and more deeply and share what you are reading with others. We are armed and protected with one word, one Holy Spirit, and one another. And together we will be well equipped. And I want to end this sermon series in Ephesians as Paul ends his letter. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith. From God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who have undying love for Jesus. Amen.